Hello, good afternoon, everyone. I know this is not our normal time, but welcome to the Phoenix and the Ferryman. And tonight, I want to bring you a very, very special guest who we are doing this time because he is from all the way across the pond. And I'm bringing to you Stefan Neff. Hello. Hi, guys. Hello there. Thank you, Krista, for having me on your show. I'm very excited. I'm all yours. And let's demystify mental health. Let's demystify all the crap that is out there. And let's talk honestly. So this is going to be an exciting interview. I know that already. <laughs> I'm really excited to have you here because I know we're on the same page on so many ways. And you have so much wisdom and so much humor and personality that you bring not only knowledge to this topic, but you bring a lightheartedness that makes people hear you, which is so important in this environment. Well, yeah, I hope to. I truly, truly hope that I can achieve that because if you think about it, Mental health, let it be depression, let it be anxiety, PTSD. These are all diseases and problems that often enough we are ashamed about, completely sort of full of shame, full of guilt. And we are just just not right there, are we? Uh, we are... We, <laughs> Okay, sorry, we had a little flicker there, a little little hiccup. So I start again. I'm not sure how much came through. Um, the problem with us is that we often live in the shadows. We try to keep all those things bottled up and keep them inside. We we have not learned that it's okay not to be okay. We have not learned to share and to be open. And that is such an important thing. So therefore, I'm so excited that we're here on this show and that we can actually talk about these things. It is the more we can talk about it, the more someone might feel the strength, that that little glimmer of hope to actually say, hey, if this nutjob got it right and if this nutjob got himself sorted, then maybe there's even a chance for me. So, yes. So if you can spread that seed of hope, that is that is what I'm living for. That is what my legacy, what I want my legacy to be. That's beautiful. And we're absolutely on the same page with that. The Battle to Be mission is literally about changing the idea of pinning mental health after the fact when we're telling people that they have disorders. Hmm. To looking at it from a standpoint of we're all in stressful environments and these jobs are, they, they, they have a toll. So we want people to look at it as mental health maintenance and as I just a normal part of the conversation that mm. we all need mental health maintenance all the time. It's mm. normal, it's natural, and it's just part of the human experience. And that's so important, isn't it? And it's it's what you're talking about is culture change. And that is something that is so important. Now, it's, I can understand if you're on the tip of the spear in the military or if you are uh, a, a firefighter, you can't just think, oh, I'm feeling really a bit, bit lonely now. And, and really, there are, there are times when you cannot look after your own mental health. When you need to shoot first, then answer questions. And sometimes that's literal. Um, 
the reality though is uh these are often environments where we then extrapolate these kind of macho behaviors often to a kind of toxic masculinity or toxic feminine femininity i don't know what the right word there is <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> so sometimes we we pretend that we have got ovaries the size of new york and you know the the girls are often worse than the boys um and it is just bullshit it is absolute bullshit and we know that we know that from so many examples um throughout history where actually um where the power of talking about something has been so healing and so tremendous an example is the british experience in the falkland wars um you're talking 80s you're talking basically a, a battle that was or a, a war that was fought on the other side of the world for the uk so many of the soldiers came there by a ship they fought uh, hard and brutal engagements there and a lot of things went not so well uh, a lot of deaths did occur a lot of trauma did occur now some soldiers were put on an airplane and they were back home within 48 hours other soldiers were put on the ship and it took them uh, several many days uh, even weeks to actually get back to port in the uk on the ship The, they made a wise rule that uh, everyone could visit anyone and could spend time together and work things out, talk. And if someone wanted to lie quietly in their bunk and just think that was okay, if they wanted to talk and, and do things, that was okay too. They just had a little bit of PT and, and, and a morning call and that was about it. Um, if you look at the incidents of PTSD uh, of the soldiers who, are, who were returned, the amount of PTSD was significantly reduced in those people who were on the ships compared with those people who were actually flown back. So that was something that every leader in a military should take, uh, should listen to and should think, huh. And it, not just military, this is an example out of the military, but the same applies to every single, every single workplace, which is hard and fast and where sometimes emotions need to be pushed aside because you've got a job to do. And it is so important that we actually accept that this is only possible for a certain time after which you will pay the price. And I guess that time frame is equally dependent upon your conditioning your mental conditioning, your your background. It goes back to your childhood, ultimately. Your core beliefs and your 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 the trauma that you that has happened to you, minor, major trauma, uh, and that has led down to to laying down of beliefs that can help you and be more resilient. Or often enough it's the other way around. It gives you some bullshit stuff that is so deeply ingrained that you don't even know about it that then causes the emotions which then cause our actions and that is oh my god it is a, a hornet's nest when you start working in that but that is where the cool shit happens and we'll talk about the ptsd and about ways how to addressing uh that but it is there is so much more going on but i think to be open to be honest to come on a show like yours and to bear my soul um that is something i do nowadays with pride 
this would have been the absolute nightmare for me, let's say eight, 10 years ago, when I was in the middle of my depression, PTSD that I didn't know that I had. Um, and I was all self-medicating with alcohol and industrial doses of vodka, basically. Um, and I think that a lot of your listeners and viewers will will say, yeah, yeah, been there too. I know, vomited on the t-shirt. Yeah, I know. <laughs> So that is so that is my mission. So that's really let's talk about that. Let's be honest and let's let's show it for what it is. It is something that is that can be expected. PTSD, depression, anxiety, these are all waves of chemicals. They are essentially um caused for some reason in our body. And there are some reasons we can do something about and some that we can't do something about, but we need to learn how to deal with these these waves. I love that you said it that way. That's we talk often about emotions and experiences coming in waves. Everything is waves. So that language is really familiar to me. You also touched on the point of how important being able to talk to people after a traumatic experience is. And your example was completely consistent with everything we see in, you know, in the academic studies now. But yours is so much more real world than just saying, oh, well, when we observe people in academic <laughs> environments, this is what happens. So people relate to your story more than, hey, well, we know that you're going to do better if you talk to people than if you don't. So we can statistically show that this is true. People don't, don't take statistics to heart. They want to know that their buddy did better and that <laughs> there is hope and it doesn't have to be what they're experiencing now for the rest of their lives it can change exactly and the problem is that the diseases or the conditions that we are uh, having those times in our lives that are challenging we we tell ourselves bullshit we 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 tell ourselves lies and in fact i am working on several books at the moment and one of them is depression lied to me and it's it's really the 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 crap that we tell each other there is no hope it will never end oh my god this is my goodness if i now take action if i talk to someone they will think i'm weak i'm not a man i'm not a woman um we are bombarded with messages in our daily life that are subconsciously programming us to be strong, to be, you know, you have to live this happy, healthy, gorgeous lifestyle. If you're not seven days a week in the gym and drinking an ice cold Coke or whatever fuck you have, and, and then there's no way that any woman will ever look at you and vice versa if you're not a certain shape as a woman and, and wear the right outfit and then uh, no man will ever look at you. It's all that shit that you think nowadays, my God, we should know better. No, we don't because we are talking reptilian brain uh, level. You know, you're talking, ooh, I want a piece of that. And if something gives you an advantage like a ice-cold beverage, then you think, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> same with the alcohol, same with the smoking in the past. You know, it is. I come from a time, I was born 66, and I grew up in, in Germany. Alcohol was ubiquitous. You had it everywhere. It was absolutely normal. All my stars, the stars that influenced my parents, as well as sort of influenced us, 
the Dean Martin, the the my parents loved the Rat Pack, so Sammy Davis Jr., all these kind of things. There was always a drink in their hands. They made getting drunk sexy. Um, Although with hindsight, we know from Dean Martin, for example, that he was, whilst he was not teetotal, but he, he many times the whiskey that he had was actually tea. Um, so he crafted that kind of cliche, that kind of thing there. It fitted the times. Um, but that is how, how I grew up. I mean, when I was uh, a teenager, it was sort of the, the anti-heroes came in. Mel Gibson, Lethal Weapon. Okay, when he wakes up in the morning, coughs his lung out, he stands naked there, have a beer in his hand, a cigarette in his mouth, and taking a piss. Well, that was my hero, okay? Bruce Willis being drunk out and out uh, cop who is waking up in his car. Yeah, that kind of bullshit. That was, these were my heroes. My parents were not, my fathers were not real people to look up to. They sort of did, did, they tried their best, uh, but it's certainly in my eyes that these were not role models. So I looked around and these were the role models I saw. Mel Gibson, love you to bits, you know. Oh, love, <laughs> sorry, let's rephrase that, Mel. Um, I love the, the, the stories that you portrayed, okay? Um, so, yeah, it is, I, I had all that crap as baggage behind me. That is how a man behaves. That is how someone uh, behaves. Um, there is, what was it? Uh, there was a Schwarzenegger film, equally, where he's playing a Russian cop in, in New York uh, who comes across to, to, to deal with some Russian crime in New York. And one of the, the questions that the New York cop was asking him is, well, how do you deal with stress? What do you do when, when uh, in, in Russia when, when something goes wrong? Vodka. That was his answer. You know, that was that was how I felt the the world behaved. Right. Maybe it's not su- <laughs> maybe it's not surprising that later on uh, I actually yeah I found vodka very no wrong I found alcohol very helpful. I mean, you to realize that because uh, often enough we go through trauma and we take alcohol and then we feel guilty about the alcohol. And people look at you, oh, he's drinking more than usually. He's an alcoholic. Oh, negative. Look at him. Bullshit. Alcohol saves saves us. Alcohol serves a purpose. It is there because at that moment you can't see anything better to deal with the pain deep inside. So let's not forget what alcohol actually does. It is a it can be a very positive substance. Initially, the first time you have it, the dopamine rush. That kind of, oh, I feel good. I remember that. I remember the first time that I had that. Oh, boy. I was high like a kite from a beer. Um, I was actually, it was in my university days. That was the first time I really experienced it. And that was, okay. In all fairness, I had, prior to that, I've been training hard, working out every day. I got that in a role to play there. But these were very dark times. Probably come to that in a moment. But Anyhow, the, the, the alcohol at that time was actually a friend. I was shy. Um, I was, um, you know, and then suddenly this alcohol was there. And suddenly, oh, bing, I didn't give a damn that I can't sing. I didn't give a damn that my guitar playing is not so great. Guitar came out, singing came out, and the girls drifted to us like moths to a flame. And it was, yeah. 
uh, we were free, free, close friends. We all played guitar. All, that's all I need to say. We had some very beautiful times, okay? So, and alcohol was very conducive for that. Alcohol was very nice in many aspects. It gave me many advantages, and it was a good friend for a while. The problem is I had never learned to use anything than this friend when things were not right. And therefore, when shit started piling up on my plate, well, I tried more and more the alcohol and more shit came. Yeah, well, let's push it down with more alcohol kind of a thing. And yeah, yeah, okay. You know where this goes. Many of you guys out there do. We have such a social tendency to label everything as just black and white, good or bad, or whatever that is, you know, we've got all the a million judgments and a million labels, but really it's a coping mechanism. Exactly. And a coping mechanism is useful until it isn't. So it's really a question of how many coping mechanisms do you have? Do you know when to use one instead of the other? Mm -hmm. And are you in control or are they in control of you is always really the question. So there's not, I mean, I can't, I never do judgments, so I'm going to be like, there's not any bad coping mechanisms, but obviously we're not talking about things like fentanyl and, you know, there are some mm. things that are not coping mechanisms. Mm. <laughs> so, but, but, but even the opiates, even the opiates are anxiolytics. Why do you think that in the 70s, uh, middle-aged housewives were addicted on, on benzodiazepines? Because suddenly the world, they just didn't give a fuck anymore about the fact that their man didn't love them etc you know and then later on towards the 2000s you had the the oxycontin uh issue in the united states specifically and it's the same thing opiates are anxiolytics they are drugs that take the anxiety away yeah bingo there you are um you are treating pain but you're treating it, unfortunately, with something that has a very, it's a very double-edged sword. But again, it actually gives the person at that moment in time a refuge. It gives them a release of sorts. And that is something that we need to recognize. In their brain, in their low-level reptilian, amphibian brain there, that brain says, oh, thank you. The pain has gone away. Therefore, it must be something good. And because the pain has gone away, oh, we better remind, uh, remember that, that this was good shit, because in the future, you, we may need it again. So guess what happens? So next time something bad happens, your brain remembers, hey, hey, there was this good stuff. What was it? Oh, oh, opiate. Yeah, good. Oxycontin. Take another one. Good shit. Um, and it then comes to a level where it is at the same level as I need oxygen, I need water, I need food, I need oxycontin or alcohol or what it is. That's where your brain levels at. It puts the same emphasis on that addictive truck that you're choosing or that behavior that you're doing. Let that be sleeping with everything that has a heartbeat or gambling or shopping or doing crazy stunts that are 50-50 if you survive it or not, you know, adrenaline junkies, all that. That is, unfortunately, it it serves us very much a, fa- uh, a purpose in our life. So, therefore, to hear Nancy Reagan in, in, the, uh, in the past saying, just say no, <laughs> 
Yeah, that's the same as if you say to a teenager, yeah, just don't have sex. Okay, it's all right. It's just be a celibate and that's it. No sex for you. That's It's just fine. Yeah, <laughs> that will go well. <laughs> so it's the same bullshit. Okay, so we need to see that that we do something for a certain reason. The other thing I want to say is that your emotional development unfortunately stops the moment you start taking drugs or alcohol. So therefore, there are many middle-aged people running around with an emotional uh, level of a 15-year-old, okay? So, and that's that's what, what you just said. It depends upon which kind of coping mechanisms you can actually establish. And that's the reason that nowadays we know that actually some 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 people say the drinking age should be 25. And you think, what? And it should be 25 because it's up to the, uh, to the age of 25 that really your frontal lobe is somewhere gone on holiday. Uh, you're still developing everything there. And um, it is in that time, if you start drinking heavily or using heavily, well, that's where you stop. That's where really addiction gets laid down. It's far more difficult to get addicted if you start using after 25. So that's a really good thing to know for you out there. But many of you have, have grown up with either drugs or with alcohol being used at a very early age. We know from the UK statistics, if you look at the age group from 18 to 24, 10% repeatedly throughout the years are taking class A drugs. So you're not talking a little bit of marijuana, you're talking the cocaine, the heroin, all those kind of things. You're talking that 10% of this population group in the UK. Fuck. That is, that's bad mojo uh, being there. Because these people will probably not learn how to be constructive and how to accept a negative emotion. Most of them wouldn't know an emotion if it bites them in the ass. They respond to this emotion. They feel the anger. They have no idea what it actually is. And the next thing is the hand goes through the glass or into someone's jaw. Um, and then we see them in the emergency department. So, But no one has ever, ever explored those emotions. And that's certainly true because if you look at my rehab, I went 2014, I ended up in an alcohol rehab in, in Auckland uh, in a beautiful rehabilitation hospital called Capri at that time. Uh, Capri is no longer around in, in that sense. But it was for me, it was a, a godsend. But the worst, the worst session throughout the day was 10 o'clock feelings. That was the session. And you were sitting around a circle. The rules were no sunglasses, no hat, no nothing. You were not allowed to have anything in your hands, no book, no nothing. You just had to sit there. And the bugger off of the, the, the leader who was focusing us and guiding us said welcome and then he shut up and people were sitting there you could hear a pin drop and sometimes nothing happens and then within a minute or two or three someone said something and then someone said something else it could be that someone has eaten too many chocolate biscuits on the night before and they were pissed off that about the other guy or or whatever it was suddenly a discussion started and emotions started coming out and feelings started coming out. And people were taught how to experience anger. What's actually happening? Why are you sad? Why are you happy? Why do you love? Why do you cry? It was that exploration of something that you could not numb. 
you couldn't escape. You can't just get on your phone and quickly play a game of something to distract yourself. No, there was no distraction. You had to deal with your feelings. You had to deal with your emotions. And that was something new for me. I dealt with either with distraction by working 16 hours a day or then with alcohol to numb myself. These were my two coping mechanisms. There was nothing else there. So therefore then, when I was in rehab and actually started, oh, well, when I was forced to, to explore my own psyche, oh boy, was I in for a ride. Okay, so that, is, that was uh, the, the hardest thing I ever did and the most beautiful thing I ever did to actually open up the curtains and look into that dark hole in there. And that was amazing. It's amazing how that seeking to understand emotions, how it can be amplified by making eye contact with another individual hmm. or by making eye contact with yourself in a mirror and just mm -hmm. allowing that contact that, that someone is there for you. Someone is there with you. Hmm. It's one of the most resisted, hated argued about but loved exercises that I, I yeah. always go through with my people no matter what their yeah. background is yeah because learning the language of emotions learning yeah. to say or name or even recognize what an emotion is is one of the first foundational steps to finding your way to healing Isn't so it? i love that i love that so exactly much. And and it, we boys especially are bad about it. Uh, this uh, our, our toxic masculinity is just yeah. One of the, the other books I'm working on is "Boys Don't Cry." Now the title is already taken by someone else. They have got a book like that, so um, maybe I should call it "Boys Do Cry," uh, where I bring sixteen authors together uh, and we all write five thousand words about our depression from a boy's point of view. Um, and it is that kind of of weird stuff we are we are told how to behave we are not told how to explore from a very early stage we are taught to medicate so when you fall down as a child nowadays well the very first thing you get is a lolly or uh, so you get a sugar fix um rather than someone sitting next to you taking you in their arms and say i know it hurts but it will go away so let's just sit together and let's, you know, it's okay to cry. Uh, no, you don't need to medicate with a lolly. You don't need to get with a, some sweets or whatsoever. And that's that would be such a, an early start, but that is not what is happening. So therefore, from an early start, we're actually guiding our youngsters down uh, the rabbit hole towards, towards coping mechanisms that are actually maybe not so clever. So food for thought. <laughs> Completely agree. <laughs> Although I kind of knew already when I researched you, I was like, no, we're going to be, we're going to be on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> that so, was fun. Just to kind of give people an idea. I did mention that you have your own podcast, but I didn't tell them what the name of your podcast was. So <laughs> okay. Mine... just a little idea where they can get more of you. Oh, thank you very much. So my steps to sobriety uh, is the, uh, the name of my podcast and of my uh, YouTube show. Um, my book, My Steps to Sobriety, um, that actually started it all when uh, when my wife two, three years ago said, 
hey, why don't you write those things down that you're sort of talking about? I was mortified. What do you mean? It was okay to talk to some people face to face, open up, and and I, I knew that this was a really nice experience. But the the reality was that ultimately, um, you know, uh, it is it was it was face to face, and now to write a book that maybe ten people see, maybe hundred, thousand, a million, God. What you know, all these thoughts, all these this catastrophizing. Oh no, what will employers say? What will my patients say? What will my uh, you know, you, you get all those kind of oh. And I tentatively started writing and I couldn't stop. <laughs> I just kept writing and writing and writing. And it was a beautiful journey because um here I was, that was probably about six years after my rehab, and I had to explore a lot of things. And it is like with everything, with every trauma, with every every life, you it's it's an onion basically. You you peel back one, you rip off one plaster, find some pus, deal with it, okay, and then you find another plaster that you rip off, and then you deal with that. Um, you can't rip off all the plasters at the same time physically. It, it, it's impossible. You only have two hands, so you need to deal with one thing at a time. That's also in your recovery from trauma or from addiction or from from other mental health problems you need to deal with one fact at a time and so me writing this book became incredibly cathartic and also traumatic in its own right um i the book is is set up or the original the first version but i showed you this version uh, is edition two the first edition was a mixture of a textbook on alcoholism after all i'm a bloody doctor for christ's sake um and and my own story and some tips and tricks and it was it was a mishmash and it was uh, i wasn't happy with it um and then it, it got revamped and edited and messed around and uh, 25 editions later uh, or drafts later uh we are now here but ultimately what is in there is basically um an approach how to deal with depression uh, how to deal with addiction shall i say um as one part of the book, but then how do you deal actually with challenges? Accept that there will be challenges in your life. The chance of you having a depression in your life is somewhere in the vicinity of one in three, one in four. The chance that you will have PTSD in your life, around about 6% of the, the population will have PTSD uh, diagnosable in their lifetime and certain subgroups, of course, much more and so on. So I'm talking a lot about these challenges and give the reader some some ways out, some f ways to think about it, what actually is depression, and then maybe some action plans, what you can do, uh, what I would do if I was in your shoes, or if that is that flood of chemicals is coming over me again, what will I do now? That is in my book. As part of the chapter, I also wrote about depression, and I wrote about postnatal depression. So there I was, writing postnatal depression, gave it to my wife to read who had suffered from it. Oh boy, oh boy, did we have some discussions. Because what I remembered and what I recalled was very different to how she saw it when she was on the receiving end. And we had some fine rows, despite the fact that it's virtually impossible nowadays to row with my wife, because we both have gone through so much development, so much therapy so much we are so much more open to talking and connecting and if someone tries to get angry then we say well 
Are you okay? Are you hungry, angry, lonely, tired? What's going on? Tell me, is, a, uh, is something worrying you? And then very quickly you realize, okay, something else is going on. And what that she was responding to you was just because she felt safe enough to shout at you whilst she couldn't deal otherwise with the situation that she's facing. So something like that. But nevertheless, we had some interesting times because there's always his story, her story, and the truth. And I think that is that was so important. And I had to eat a lot of humble pie. I had to realize that there was a lot of buried anger and resentment on my wife's behalf that actually had not been dealt with. And it was these kind of things. So whenever you go on a journey like I did with writing this book, it had flow-on effects, tremendous flow-on effects. And you grow. You you have to grow because there are new, there's new trauma waiting for you in the process of that. Or there's old trauma being uncovered. Um, it is what it is. You have to deal with it. You might be in Europe and you want to do a nice new development. Let's say you want to renovate your house and you excavate for a garage on the side. And there's suddenly a 500 kilogram bomb there that is left over from the Second World War. You might like it or you might hate it. The bomb doesn't give a fuck. Okay, so you better deal with that bomb and get the right experts in. So you wouldn't probably go to the garage, take some spanner and say, oh, let's see what I can do. Yet here we are with our minds somehow thinking, oh, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I'll try. Oh, bullshit. You want to get a, a bomb disposal team in there. Equally, you know, there are some bombs waiting up there to go boom. Maybe let's get a bomb disposal team for up there and, and, and actually see that you've got a coach, that you've got maybe a psychologist, your family physician, so important, your GP, your, your um, a psychiatrist, often enough, you know, a whole team of people, other people who have been in your shoes and are now living a life where you think, wow, how did they do that? This is all part of your team to get better and to grow. And one of the biggest things for you to do is to actually say, Okay, yes, I am actually in trouble to recognize that and then feel empowered enough to make that first phone call, that first me too, the first kind of coming out of sorts. That is the biggest step, the biggest challenging step in your life you can do, but you can do it, guys. You can do it. I did it. Kicking and screaming, I admit, I had to have my wife sort of really laying it out and and the way it went is i had my last big breakdown burnout I got drunk in the garage next morning i woke up and she had behind my back organized an admission to the rehabilitation hospital alone i would have not never actually gone there but i was then at a point where i accepted okay i need help and that was the most beautiful thing nowadays i wonder how i would have been had I sought help earlier? Um, but yeah, on my own show, I interview guests and the vast, vast, vast majority of my guests, if I asked them, if you had a time capsule, uh, time, time machine, you could go back and what would you change? They think for a moment and then say, no, I wouldn't change anything because without the trauma, without what has happened, I would have not grown. I would have not been the person who I am now, who can sit here, look in your eyes. I'm now such so much stronger than I ever was in the past. And I think that, that is so true. Um, 
I, I would not change anything with my past. It is what it is. But I, and I have learned to love myself nowadays, warts and all. And there are lots of warts and lots of scars, okay? Physical as well as mental. Far more mental than physical, actually. Um, but it is what it is. Guys, you guys, believe me, you can make a change. The past does not equal the future. There's absolutely no doubt about that in my mind. So do not give up. Stunning. <laughs> impactful. Just there's so much to unpack there. I want to go back to kind of the beginning of what you were talking about writing as healing, because I think it is, I think it's missed so often how valuable a tool that can be. Everybody knows journal, 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 but it's not about journaling, it's about telling your story. And that's a totally different thing. So when you take yourself out of it and you tell your story from, I almost don't want to use the word disassociated, but I'm going to use that word because it's a, it's also a safe zone when you're disassociated from it mm. enough that you can put it at arms, arm's length mm. and look at it. You have the opportunity to view it from a different perspective. Mm. And that is a phenomenal opportunity for healing. Mm. So it, one of the programs that battle to be does with our PTSD, uh, most of the people who are well on their way, well on their healing journey is a right to heal workshop where they, they begin with the objective to write their book, to write an entire book about their story, their experiences, their healing journey. What have they been through? What were the feelings associated Mm -hmm. with it? And it almost serves as an EMDR experience. It Mm -hmm. almost takes them to that. The emotions are here. The experience is here. And I can separate the two now. Mm -hmm. I can look at the two as individual things. And after the fact, it allows you to put them in your memory the way that they're supposed to. So there's really cool science behind Mm -hmm. writing as therapy. But it's something that you have to be well on your healing journey. You have to be standing on solid ground to take that step. But when you are ready and when you are able, it's unbelievable the layers that can can open up and can have that final polish. Some of it is literally just that final little bit of, wait, I am okay with this now. I am okay with me now. I accept who I am now. It's just such a beautiful process. And it was really inspiring to hear the way that you express the journey, especially mm. trying to tell someone mm. else's story. Mm. And then connecting with Also, there are, there is, oh, absolutely. And there are other aspects to that as well, um, as well as to, to actually dealing with or being on your journey. The, often it is so important to to listen to someone what he or she is saying but often it's more important to listen to what they are not saying and sometimes when you actually write things down i have been in situations where i forced myself to write so when you've got a writer's block um and you don't know what you want to write about are you just you go there's a there's a funny word for it uh it's speed writing it's it's just a it's a brain dump just go there yeah exactly vomit and that's exactly what you do and i I had experiences where my fingers 
typed away at speed. And I thought, what the hell am I typing there? It was like as if a ghost were were putting letters in front of me. And I thought, where is that coming from? And it was deep down there in my subconscious. Shit came out onto paper. And I've got fucking goosebumps. <laughs> because this is how the how the brain works. Fuck. Um, this is how the brain works. And these are not ghosts. This is this is the power of your brain. Because the brain wants to heal, it wants to come out, it wants to tell you all these stories. It doesn't want to give you the pain, but it wants to say, Hey, this is still something that you need to deal with. And that is what I experienced there. So there I stood there, had written two pages, uh, typewritten on the computer, and thought, huh, okay. Okay, more work to be done. <laughs> and that's, this is cool. This is cool. So therefore, that is beautiful. Also, you might think, oh my God, I will never be able to publish that because you might have been under legal obligation to keep your mouth shut if you were a soldier. Um, that is often enough the case. For me as a doctor, I am not allowed by contract to say anything negative about my about my, um, um, institutions I work with or for or at. Um, that's a bit of a pain in the ass because many institutions are not so snow white and beautiful. No, thank you very much. Um, so, and unfortunately, yeah, the whistleblowing, it's, it's there for a reason. Um, but here you are, even if you are aware that you cannot say anything, it still doesn't mean to say you can't write your book. I was, I was a while ago in the UK my computer was broken so i walked into this this um this little computer shop a little nothing nothing big just one guy behind the desk and i said hey computer broken blah blah and he said yeah yeah i hear a bit of a twang where you come from he said and i said germany i said ah ah my father taught me a um a sentence and the sentence is um himmels willen helfen sie mir uh, for God's sake, help me. And I thought, well, that's not a great pickup line. And, but that was what his father taught him. And I thought, wow, that's weird. And turns out the guy, his father had passed away about three months prior to me walking into that shop. And the guy was completely rattled about it because his father was a, yeah, a guy who seemed to be working in a shop, etc. And he passed away. Suddenly, someone from the Ministry of Defense came to him and said, you don't need to worry about the the um, the burial. Uh, we'll take care of all of that. And he had full military honors, the Wurzburger, thrown at him. And his son was saying, what, 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 tell me more. And they said, well, we can in about 30 years' time when the, when the secrecy is, is, the limitations are gone. But rest assured, there is... Um, your dad was a great man. Um, so there are stories like that out there that are absolutely just amazing. Where, where did we go? Where did I start that story? Because I went to go somewhere and now I, I, I've lost my train of thought. It's such a great story. Uh, but, where were we? The, you the, write, uh, the writing down. The writing down. Absolutely. The secrecy. Uh, so I hope this dad had been able to write somewhere these things down and kept them somewhere under lock and key with a time seal to, to be broken in 30 years' time. Because there's so many stories out there that 
actually should be told in public. But even if you just, if you forget about a book, you can still write a book to heal. Don't call it a book, call it whatever. Your treatment, your, your, I don't know, make something up. Create a, a construct up there that allows you to actually open up. And sometimes, um, I don't know how you feel. First of all, um, what do you do with these papers? If it is sensitive material, you shouldn't really write it down, should you? Yet at the same token, you know, that is the trauma. If you have been uh, special forces undercover, God knows where, and it doesn't matter if it was Vietnam War or if it is nowadays, the trauma is still there. It's, it's you know, you want to write it down. Do you burn it? Do you shred it? Do you put it into a bank safe? I don't know. I don't know. I don't have a right answer there. But the power of actually writing it down is still there from a therapeutic as well as from a from a from a from a growth point of view. So I don't know what you recommend your soldiers to do. I certainly have get that discussion with a friend of mine who is special forces, um, and he he struggles with it, uh, with who is uh, what to do with it. So I don't know. I don't have an answer there. What would you say? It's not an uncommon problem either. This is something that I've run into too. And I have just last night was having a conversation with someone who's like, well, I'll be able to talk about it while my oldest one goes out in 30 years, but I just signed another (laughs) one recently. So it's like, you know, and and it's literally a a stumbling block for therapy because they're afraid that Mm. they don't know what they can and can't say, but they feel like they can't say anything. Exactly. So like, oh, I can't deal with my PTSD until I can actually talk about stuff. So yeah. then you get to talk about how cool the unconscious mind is and some yeah. of those other modalities besides just talk therapy that yeah. you can work with your PTSD, even if you're not talking about the exact specific incident that you're talking about. Correct. So Absolutely there correct. really cool modalities that you can use with more unconscious mind work than mm. mind mm. work. So there's room to explore in there. But I oftentimes when we don't want people to see something, we do a burning mm. ritual. So we exactly. get it out and then we release it. Exactly. Yeah. And that is actually so beautiful. And that was that is that was one of the things that was done with me. I was full of resentment and anger about a certain institution. And because I was not allowed to say anything uh, in my daily life, the moment I, the first time I said, hello, I'm Stefan, I'm an alcoholic. The moment that word has come over my mouth, a dam broke. And I, you couldn't stop me talking because I also realized it was safe to me now to talk about those things that have been traumatic in my life. And oh, I was singing like a canary. And the my caseworker there, she took me. A, she asked me, "Come on, I want you to write everything down about that institution, everything about the trauma, everything that you think that's really important. Go into detail. Just do it, man." And I went to town. I wrote and wrote and wrote until my fingers cramped that night. And next day, I came with many pages, sort of there. Yeah, come on, let's talk. I tell you, come on. Oh, what these bastards did to me! And she said she took it and folded it in half, and then put it to the side. And she said, "Okay, that's cool. Thank you so much, Stefan. Now let's talk a bit about you." And I said, "But, but, 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 uh, 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 uh. <laughs> no, no. Let's talk about you." <laughs> I was pissed off with her. I was pissed off. 
Yet, I didn't realize until days later how much that writing down in detail had actually helped me to sort of put it down, put the baby to bed, and then she said, cool, you have done a really good job there. Now let's talk about something that is important, you. And wow, that was a powerful thing to do. So I love the burning ritual. I love that. We didn't burn it. Actually, I actually don't know what we did with the paper, uh, but it was not, not no. <laughs> but maybe I should have, actually. I should have. <laughs> so, no, that is so important. So, so yes, please find ways um, to still deal with that. The other thing I want to say is PTSD is, is such a weird, weird chameleon of a, of a condition, let's call it. Um, PTSD whilst it has sort of prescribed clear guidelines how you diagnose it, it comes in all shapes and colors. I felt in, and certainly in my own life, I did not realize I had PTSD up until about two years, three years ago. Um, I, when I was 13, 14, I was involved in a, um, I was in the wrong place, wrong time, and the gang had fun with me. So my front teeth are all artificial. Um, and yeah, sort of, uh, it was good luck that I got away with it, uh, with a life, so to speak. My bruises hadn't healed when I started training martial arts. And that was in, you're talking 70s, 80s now. Um, so I didn't have a, anything of mental support, psychological support, anything like that. No one talked about it. On the contrary, I was, I started to do martial arts. And I started to train. And from this pudgy young teenager, I turned into quite a good fighting machine. Um, trained four hours a day, um, pretty much seven days a week. And I lived this very dark, focused life. I was just a fighter. That was me. End of the story. And I had good reason to, because I was, uh, I took part in the trial for the gang leader, and he went behind bars for three years uh, because of my ins uh, my injuries, as well as a, a rape that happened to around about the same time. And he looked me in the eyes, I'll kill you when I come out. And I had good reason to believe that this is actually true. So that was my story. So I became a fighter. I was ready at any one time to defend myself. And that was a positive thing in my mind. I was completely aware of everything. Um, I mean everything at any second in the day. Good old hypervigilance. I didn't have, uh, well, I had flashbacks, certainly, um, towards that. Um, but later on, those flashbacks changed. Mm. They changed, absolutely. So I still, to this day, have flashbacks, but not flashbacks necessarily to that that fight. No, flashbacks to anything that is negative. So I get, you know, for many, many, many years, I had four o'clock in the morning, I would wake up and I've got the best of Stefan. Everything I've done wrong in the last 30 years, there it is, boom. Or I drive along and my kids know me from, from when they they could pay attention that from now and then I drive and suddenly you go... And they thought, are you okay, Dad? Uh, and I said, yeah, just flashback. And it's basically a memory that floods back to me how I maybe dealt or how I treated a woman uh, or a girl in the past or some stupid thing I said or a stupid email I sent, shit like that. But I get this, whoa, as if someone punches you in the gut. Um, I get this kind of response, startled response. 
And um, I just said, yeah, that is all good. And I actually, this hypervigilance, it helped me later. It, it, when you're a doctor, when you're, especially when you're in emergencies and you're hypervigilant and you're, you're always there, well, makes you a good anesthetist, makes you a good uh, emergency guy to have around. Hey, cool shit. Um, but I could never switch that off. Surprise, surprise that I that I found alcohol quite soothing. Um, and especially when you finally pass out and you finally can give all those demons a rest. That's actually quite nice. But I didn't know that. I had this construct in my head. I had disguised all these signs and symptoms as something completely different, as being a man, as being being awake and being there for, for things here, yeah, right? And then uh, this this colleague of mine, he fell apart with his PTSD. And he was a wreck. And after a week off, he came back and he was a different man. And he said, look, Stefan, it's going to be all right now. I'm going to be fine. And I thought, oh, fuck. Is he about to, to top himself? And in my mind, at that moment, he said that, I sort of went through the through my through the, the algorithm, so to speak, and thought, yeah, you're right. Here you are having flashbacks, having hypervigilance, having and I reeled off the symptoms of PTSD, and I suddenly realized I described myself. And that was my breakthrough. And that was two, three years ago. And I thought, what? And then but I still was focused on him. And I sort of decided okay, oh, that's that's beautiful. And I uh, sort of kept an eye on him. And truly, within a week, he was a different man. And I thought, what the hell? And I, I took him aside and sort of said, tell me a bit more. What did you do? And it turns out that he worked with a hypnotherapist um, who was able to really unscramble his mind and helped him. And within a, four, uh, within a few short, no, not so short sessions, probably, within a few sessions of hypnotherapy, he had the breakthrough that he needed to improve and get better so they she she was able to to take to take the scratch of the vinyl of the lp and suddenly the music was playing again rather than going again and again and again to the same loop and i was blown away and i said give me the number of this woman and i want to know what's going on and that's how i met nikki the first time uh, and I met her, and quite a skeptic. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bit of a cynical ass uh, when it comes to these kind of things. So, but I'm, I'm open enough to everything to give it a shot. And so we had two hours of talk, and she said, "Do you want to sit in the chair, yeah, feel, try it out?" And I said, "Okay, very good." And that ended up in my my first hypnotherapy session. And fast forward, just three three sessions, and between her asking the right questions. And then giving me a new software update in the hypnotherapy, my night dreams, this four o'clock waking up, gone. My jerks, my my this kind of hypervigilance, not gone, but much improved. And it, is, it was, for me, that was exactly the right thing I needed to have the insight. Actually, that is what is happening. That's why you respond like that. And A, let's give you a different baseline program up there. B, let's use different coping mechanisms. Let's use a different way of tapping into your subconscious, maybe with relaxation therapy, with, with other therapies. That was a godsend for me. It changed my life dramatically.
Now, fair enough, my, my PTSD might have been mild, but it had plagued me for the better part of decades. And, you know, you just feel like a dick when you're sitting there and <laughs> your son looks across. Oh, not a flashback, huh? Um, and you think, yeah, and you just wipe over it and keep driving. And you think, oh, for fuck's sake, you know? And it's just when I actually look how much it impacted my life, bloody hell. But I didn't know it. And again, this is sometimes it takes a catalyst like that, the story of, of someone uh, next to you to open up and tell you what he's going through for you to feel empowered enough to seek the help. And that's so beautiful. If we can just all actually open up and accept that we are broken on the inside, that we all have our trauma, that we all have got our flow on effects. Some of us are really good in hiding them. And that's what you hear again and again and again and again. And we are very good in putting masks up, uh, very good in hiding our addictions, our, uh, our behaviors that we use to somehow deal with our emotions. Um, oh, for the fucking bullshit. If you could just be honest, and then with this honesty and transparency, you can get the treatment that leads you to humility and integrity. It changes you from being a reactive little Pavlov's dog, the bell goes, bing, ah, chul, 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 um, to actually, I want to plan my life. I know that I'm at risk of a relapse. It may be from the PTSD or depression or may be from the addiction. I, I better put habits into my daily life that lead me away from a relapse rather than guide me towards the relapse. In addiction, we say you either work on your recovery or you work on your relapse. That's actually very true, and it fits for all mental health problems as far as I'm concerned. So it's all about really laying down a good foundation. And that's what you do. You lead these these your your brothers and sisters in, in away from where they are, and allow them to dissociate the emotions from from the, the what has happened in the past. But you then also teach them new ways of dealing with it. Yeah, okay, you've been drinking the whole liquor store every weekend. Yeah, have you tried something else? You know, kind of a thing. And most of them have not. Most of them are living in their bloody cave of a bedroom um, and basically keep the curtains down. They don't want to know the, what else is out there. And that's where we need to show, yeah, I've been in that cave. I literally was in that cave, you know. My garage was my cave. And I had alcohol everywhere hidden away so that my family doesn't know. And let's be, let's be honest, guys. I mean, just see if that rings a bell. You wake up in the morning hungover so you're hiding that you're hungover then you sort of get through the day and then you're hiding that you're buying the alcohol then you're hiding that you're drinking the alcohol then you're hiding that you're drunk and then typically at some stage you fall over and then that's it um and then you start the day again sounds familiar if so we need to talk Okay, so you see, I was a full-time busy man with all the hiding that I was doing. And unfortunately, many of us are doing exactly the same with PTSD, the same, the same with depression. Um, let's stop the hiding, guys. Okay, let's let's shine the torchlight on it and actually look at the past. You need you need to deal, you need to take the, the band-aid off 
And sometimes you need a bloody big scalpel to actually cut open the, the boil underneath there. The pus needs to come out and, and sometimes it hurts. But as pulling a tooth, you know, it is, you can either be for years in chronic pain or you can just get this bloody tooth out and then deal with the, the extra pain now and then at least it will settle down. At least it can heal. <laughs> I love that you brought up hypnosis. That's one of it's one of the alternative methods that that I end up going to really regularly with my clients. And I don't do a one size fits all thing. So every single person is completely different. Every single exactly. approach is completely different. But when I first bring up the word hypnosis, people have such a wrong idea about what that mm. even is. And then everybody thinks, well, I'm supposed to go to a psychotherapist. I'm supposed to do cognitive behavior therapy. Yeah. But when you're talking about any of the trauma spectrum injuries, if you're talking about PTSD, it lives on a spectrum. And no matter how little or how big your PTSD is, cognitive behavior therapy might not be the thing for you, or it might yeah. only be one piece of the puzzle. And you need 10 different things to get to where you want to get. So just because you've had one therapist in the past and you're like, I did that, I did that thing and it didn't work for me. You've exactly. got to look further. There's so mm. many mm. amazing yeah. options. There's mm. somatic, yeah. there's body-based mm. stuff, there's nervous mm. system-based stuff, there's movement-based stuff. And then there's mm. all of the, the various different versions of, of hypnosis. So there's a ton of options. And something... Absolutely. Or a combination of some things will work for you. But remember, it is you will not go once to the gym and then you fit. Hey, that's it. No my gym because I've done my my, my once in, in a lifetime gym. Uh same with healthy eating, you know? It is a process. It is something uh, that you need to do. And equally your journey to recovery from your PTSD might include at various times different options because one option or one treatment gave you a breakthrough to a certain point then you get stuck then maybe something else helps you next step forward so it is it is an ongoing journey um, sometimes a journey that loops around and comes back to the same point so two steps forward three steps back can be and then that's okay just accept it for what it is. It is, if you think about it, if you're flying from here, uh, New Zealand to Hawaii, um, rest assured, 99% of the time, the plane will be off course. And that's what you do. You readjust. That's what a pilot does. Okay, you could be blown away from the wind. Okay, cool. You go back there. That's the same with therapy. Okay, it's the same with treatment. Um, you, you might stray off the path. You might even have a relapse. You might have even whatever, a period where new trauma uh, exacerbates old trauma. Hey, that's it is what it is. Like it or lump it, it will happen. Um, it's a matter of how do you deal with it? How will you actually accept it? And nowadays, I mean, it is, I had, towards the end of last year, I had quite a lot of anxiety because I had completely burned out I on purpose and accepted what it was with COVID. Uh, as a private anesthetist, I wasn't sure if the next day I would still be at work or if I'm now in a lockdown for six months where no money comes in because if I'm not there, there's no money coming. Um, so therefore, there was quite a lot of fear. There was a lot of anxiety there. And I worked around the clock again, but this time without the alcohol. 
But my life really condensed into work, come home, crash, work, come home, crash. That's it. Um, and it, towards the end of the year, there were a lot of anxiety attacks uh, that I had. And I recognized them for what they were. My body was saying, what the fuck are you doing? And so I actually went to the toilet when that happened. I asked my anesthetic technician to look after the patient. Here's my phone. I'm just sitting on the toilet for a minute or two. And I would sit there, hyperventilate, allow this wave of emotions to run over me. And maybe look at my hands and on purpose tremble. Get it out of the system. Um, and accept it for what it was. Then take a few deep breaths, do some relaxation, do some mindfulness. Okay, back into there. And it it was something like, you know, you talk the whole thing happening in a period of two, three minutes. I was able to shorten an anxiety attack into that by accepting it as a message from my body and from my mind to say, you idiot, what the hell are you doing? And towards, hey, yes, I know, but right now I need to do that. And yes, I know this is the 14th cup of coffee. I know. Um, just yes. And I'm not kidding. I had, I had, I mean, I've only just started. I had just detoxed last week from my coffee ha habit, which was typically 14 to 16 cups um, in nicely there, easy, easy to drink. This is now, I get three cups a day. <laughs> That's my three cups. It's like bloody wash water. Um, my mind was telling me, what the hell are you doing? That's homeopathic. I mean, that's rookie numbers, but it's actually quite nice for me to come back down. But that was end of last year. I was, I was at that level. I was pure survival, absolute pure survival. And sometimes it is what it is. But this anxiety, that's what I wanted to say. These kind of waves will come. These are waves that will come and go just as much as you're in the ocean. A wave will come towards you. And you might say, oh, no, I don't like this wave. No, 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 uh, uh, go back, wave. Yeah, sorry, it doesn't work so well. The wave doesn't give a toodle. It will come, you like it or you lump it. So you either can get drowned with the wave or you can learn to surf. That's really your two options. And I'll accept those waves as messages from my body that I maybe have not looked after myself as much as I pretend to. Um, and there might be good reasons. And sometimes, like, like end of last year, it was all, yeah, this was what it was, end of the story. And, but then I made sure that actually my family understood that I'm no use to anyone when I come home. I just, you know, just forget about me. I uh, love you all, but leave me alone kind of a thing. And it was what it was. And then when the Christmas holidays came, I then actually started licking my wounds and then did the maintenance and the, the self-love to actually get myself back on, on deck and, and back to function as a, as a, as a reasonably normal human being. Most people would not describe me as that, but hey, I, I still pretend from now and then. Well, and that's a good message for especially our audience that there are times when you have all the time in the world to take care of yourself and to nurture your wounds and to mm. be healing. And then there mm. are moments and there are months when you have to stop and function mm. at your optimal at one specific thing, doing what must be done. And you put your health, you put your welfare, you put your healing on hold. Now, yeah. that's never good, that's never healthy, but many of us have to do that. So what do you yeah. do when that happens? 
you bring the coping mechanisms with you that you learned and those quick moments when you have just five breaths to calm your nervous system or just mm. enough time to stop the cycling thoughts that start to happen when you're doing those, mm. those anxiety mm. attacks. You have to mm. be able to recognize mm. when you're in trouble if you're in those demand situations and you learn those coping skills when you're not in those demand situations, not Very when nice. you're in the middle of them. Very <laughs> you nice. When you're doing good and you practice them when you're doing good. Hundred percent on the money. Spot on. <laughs> But then again, also you can make those hard times a learning experience for the people around you because you can show them in the sense of my family, I showed them that I was not relapsing back into alcohol or maybe a new addiction of sorts. Um, in my workplace, I w had worked hard over the years to gain trust and to establish a working environment in theater, in the, the group that is immediately around me. I created this bubble of trust And it is beautiful because towards the end of last year, it, I wasn't the only one who was knee deep in trouble. All of my nurses were basically too. And it, is, it was not uncommon that a nurse was quietly coming to me and uh, said, hey, look, you know, I had a huge row with my husband. And look, I'm, uh, today I won't be on my best behavior and I uh, won't be on point. And my typical response was to give them a huge hug and say, hey, look, it's okay. Uh, it's absolutely okay. And it was so humbling and so beautiful for me to see that because I had fostered that kind of openness of honesty. And the, the end result is that as a team, we worked so much better. At times, my nurses did not have the insight. Um, I mean, I say my nurses, I mean, we are talking in a theater environment. You have got one surgeon, one anesthetist, anesthetic tech, and then three to four to five nurses, depending on what, what theater you're talking about. So therefore, you're talking about more, more girls typically than, than, uh, than, than the boys running around. So um, what I was trying to say, sometimes our nurses or some nurses did not have the inside. And they were still not just in in stress but actually in distress and i uh, remember <laughs> one nurse ripped my head off <laughs> with something and all fear just stopped looked across at her <laughs> and uh, i just i just thought okay <laughs> i didn't take it whatsoever uh on face value i just said okay girl you're in trouble aren't you And uh, I just let her rant at me. And about a minute later, her adrenaline had calmed down and she realized what had happened. And it was so beautiful. <laughs> it was, and we all had a really good laugh about it. And, and the whole thing was de-escalated and, and it was just beautiful. But it is, you need to create this openness and that willingness to accept that people cannot always be on 100%. And that there will be times when you're an asshole and like it or lump it, you will be crumpy and you will be a crumpy old man. And luckily it's few and far between nowadays, but it still happens. It's still, but the more we can talk about it, the less likely it has flow on effects, the less likely it is that someone takes offense to that. Um, and that's the beautiful thing. So let's be open. Let's come out with our act that we are human beings. 
regardless if we're a strong soldier and uh, the best firefighter, the, the most top um, uh, paramedic, it does not matter. It does not matter what role you play. Yes, there are times to be to be kick-ass, and there are times to just sit quiet on the side and actually cry. And both of that is necessary. You need to be able to do both to function. You cannot be always the, the top asshole. No, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work. Okay, you can't always be on the best. So there is a there is a, a level where we all are neutral. And we somehow think that we always need to be the best, 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 of a stretch up there. We need to be happy, strong, in our best, whatever, whatever category you put yourself. But there's a rubber band attached to you. So yeah, going up there, going up. Ah, then you come back down. And and then you get upset. Shit, my God, I'm not young, beautiful, happy, and whatever crap you're telling yourself you can't be there all the time so you come back down that's normal that's where sort of meditation brings you that's where your your serenity comes in that's normal and sometimes you also get pulled down you're really in the dumps you're really down and equally your body doesn't really want to stay there and you, you really shouldn't stay there but circumstances will give you there rest assured the rubber band will get you back up there and you learn maybe techniques in the future that might speed up the the rubber band pulling you back up or you actually find find ways of pulling yourself literally up the band and say now okay good i had my pity party but now let's actually i go now for a walk i go actually out into the sunshine i will actually do some physical exercise now and i know that's the last thing i want to do but i actually force myself and chances are uh, you will struggle to keep that low mood, to take power poses, as stupid as it sounds. Uh, Tony, uh, Tony Robbins is, 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 that, is a very strong proponent of that. Stand there, say, yes, yes. And try to do that. Really, honestly, try to do that acting power pose. It's really hard to stay depressed when you do that. So you, you, you change your physical state and suddenly your mental state follows. And these are all sort of weird little shitty tricks that actually might work in one situation. It doesn't might not work in a meeting. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so don't try that. I've, I recommend uh, to, to maybe learn different habits. But maybe in a meeting, you could maybe do some deep breathing. You can actually force yourself to sit up. You can actually do other things where your physical state changes and then your mental state follows. So this is just one example. There's so many things that someone like, like you, Krista, can teach people. Um, that's where we all can teach each other. So if you actually start on that development pathway, you will never stop learning because you get new experiences. You get new, new things, things that you had no idea about. For example, I mean, I, I went to a osteopath and to get my spine sort of readjusted a little bit. And that was really nice. And about a free, third or fourth session, I realized that for some of the treatments, he actually had his hands off me. And I recognized what it was. He was a healer as well. Um, he was a man who is using energy and other other things. And... And the moment I realized that was when actually my spine readjusted without him doing anything. So I felt this 
on my pelvis. And I thought, what the hell is that? And he had not even touched me. But uh, it is, and I thought, what the heck? Come on, man. And I asked him after that session, I said, well, how much of your practice is actually healing and how much is actually osteopathy? And he looked at me and said, um, 40, 50%. Um, so I had recognized what it was. And it sounds bullshit. And, and uh, for me as a doctor to say that, you know, come on, he has lost his marbles. No, there are things out there where, where people use different modalities that work. And there he was, did things to my body that I thought, oh, that's a bit spooky. Um, but it worked. Uh, you could uh, you could say with the hypnotherapy, oh, for fuck's sake, that's a bit spooky, but it worked. And you can say that with many things, okay? So maybe your own beliefs are sometimes something that is actually in your way. That someone goes tap, 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 tap on your head, and you think, you're kidding me. What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Stop tapping me. And you will actually... You know, um, so these are all the things. There's so many things out there that you, as the listener of you, who's coming on new now onto the show, uh, you may have never heard about. Well, yeah, so what? So what? Be open enough. Just admit first that maybe you're in trouble. And then my suggestion is, if you are in trouble, maybe go to, the, to a logical place first, something like your family physician, your GP. Because maybe the reason that your mood is all over the show is because you've got something very biological happening. Your fire rate might be out of kilter and then suddenly you're very low in mood or very high and manic depressive because your fire rate hormones firing like mad. So there are some things that, that can explain that. So have a physical once over and check out that there's not something that you need to treat to help you with your mood problem. If that is not the case, then the next step is that this person might actually put you in, in contact with some sources that are immediately available to you that you didn't even know that they are there. So therefore, that's so wonderful where suddenly you realize, shit, I do, oh, I've got six sessions with a, a psychologist for free because they're in whatever kind of program. Hey, fantastic. You don't need to pay. That's your start of a journey. And you might make the first breakthrough and then, you might actually find, hey, maybe it's quite nice to actually see if other people have been in the same place. Then you find a community such as Krista and, 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 and her tribe. Um, and then you say, wow, okay, you did what? Oh, hypnotherapy. Okay, that's the next thing. And then the next thing. And suddenly you grow and you stack things up. By the time you've blinked, you've learned a dozen new coping mechanisms that work for different situations, for different challenges. It's amazing. It's an amazing journey. <laughs> isn't it you never know what you need and that's why i love my practicing anesthesia and where i keep an open mind i always ask myself well how did my forefathers deal with uh a certain problem in an emergency department or in a in the anesthetic environment um how did other people do it or how do we do it nowadays in the third world where you don't have that or that or that i learn i try to have different options open to me so that I can choose for that scenario right now, I will choose that option because I think of that and that, and that reason. So it's the same with coping mechanisms. It's the same with, with treatment. It's the same with relapse prevention. You name it. It's basically the more you, the more strings you've got to your bow, the better it is. So it can be an amazing, amazing life if you choose to make it so. Since you work in the medical environment, let's talk a little bit about 
we always talk about the stigma of PTSD and how, you know, our policemen, our firefighters, our military, we don't talk about it because we're all masculine and we're tough, but we forget, common, commonly we forget that our nursing staff, our emergency room staff, they are absolutely in the same boat. They're absolutely having the same traumatic experiences, the stress, the overwhelm, the overwork, the things that they see, the things that are demanded of them. Mm-hmm. So it you just opened the opportunity for me to bring that up that mm-hmm. they are included in all of our frontline services and free resources are available there too. And one of our big things is teaching hospitals and emergency rooms to train ahead of time for the kind of things that we're talking about, the resourcing, the how do I breathe to calm my nervous system? How do I take 30 seconds to change my day? How do I stop this? I'm overwhelmed, I'm overwhelmed, I'm overwhelmed. And if you keep telling yourself that, you're sure as hell going to be overwhelmed. But if you say, (laughs) do one thing at a time, do it, get it over with, (laughs) it's a little different. (laughs) So, I mean, just small resourcing tools ahead of time. Oh, please. You're so right there. It's so beautiful to hear that. And the statistics speak for themselves. If you look, there was a a recent study looking at emergency department nurses, how often they were abused in the last month. And in that particular study, it was 95% uh, of nurses had uh, had been abused um, physically, emotionally, a few of them even sexually. Uh, but it, more physical assault kind of those kind of things were the the common being screamed at at the top of their voice those kind of things so nurses are going through some brutal times and i absolutely feel for them and it doesn't need to be big to leave a really deep impact i remember one day walking onto our intensive care unit and i was i was responsible for it on that day so i walked in and you 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 could cut the, the air with a knife. You felt, oh, my God, one nurse had just been crying. And something odd was going on. And I thought immediately, hey, what's going on? Um, and it turns out that a patient um, had been allocated a Indian nurse who was a superb nurse, loved it with the woman. And, and this, uh, this patient was indigenous, a Maori person. And she, the patient, was essentially dying, a young woman dying of diabetes and those kind of things, asthma and rotting away, basically. And she had taken one look at the brown nurse, the Indian nurse. I don't want to be treated by such a nurse. And it's interesting, the Indian nurse actually kept it together Unfortunately, she, it's not the first time that she was race, racially abused. Um, but actually, uh, the other nurses were were quite upset. There was quite a trauma there um, from such a person, uh, from a person you would have expected more humility and for and more gratefulness and, and maybe integrity, whatever you want to say. Um, and it was it was brutal. And the only reason that I didn't. Well, I said some words to this patient, and uh, but I was I was very much restrained because I knew this woman was dying. This is this was not a, a fight I wanted to do. Um, but there were other times when I took patients aside and basically 
laid into them in no uncertain terms. But it's it's these kind of little insults that can actually be huge drama. So you don't need to see your best buddy being blown up by a mine to get PTSD. You can have small insults such as that can weigh very heavily on someone. There was this prank uh, a while ago. Two Australian DJs um, had called um, an English ward and pretended to be the queen or something like that, wanted to, and they basically fooled a nurse there. And uh, it was all a prank. And ultimately, the nurse the next day took her life. And it is these kind of things. So it is even small, what you seem innocuous comments might be a huge trauma for someone else. Only because you don't perceive it as such, that doesn't mean to say that they are not impacted dramatically. I think that is something that we need to recognize. So first of all, this is not a pissing contest when it comes to trauma. Uh, and unfortunately, women often enough will have far more likely to have sexual abuse or, or um, similar similar stresses that cause the PTSD and the trauma compared with men who rather have, maybe have other things. But ultimately, if you think road traffic accidents, you know, they are, whilst they affect more men, it's still the women gets the same. So there's so many reasons why someone can actually get uh, PTSD and, and trauma impacting them. So it is, we need to accept it for what it is. So I think, yes, trauma is is there all the time. Only because it's little in your mind doesn't mean to say it's the same for someone else. And the poor nurses out there who are working themselves ragged, and many of whom are now voting with their feet and basically leaving the profession because they say, I've got enough with COVID. I've got enough being treated like shit. Uh, I understand that. The levels of burnout are huge. And I, I one of my... Uh, the other book that I'm writing, so I might as well say it all. So we write four books at the moment for which I'm seeking co-authors. Um, one is for the boys, uh, Boys Don't Cry, um, focusing on depression and anxiety. Uh, same for the girls, uh, Depression Lied to Me, Depression and Anxiety. And then I write a book, a co-author book uh, for nurses, um, Stress, I Want a Divorce. Um, as the, the, the working name. So 16 nurses bring it together and the same with doctors, burnout in doctors. So these are the four books I'm working on and I'm recruiting uh, now till the end of February, um, recruiting for uh, co-authors, storytellers, uh, people who have gone like me through, through the roughs and, and are now happy to share their story in the hope that others can learn from it and that others can actually get empowered to seek the help to speak up to take action that is really where where things change the moment you speak up and say no that is not okay what is happening here we need we need to draw a line in the sand and by the way right now i need a break so let me have a coffee first okay and then we are talking it's and that is the hardest thing sometimes for us to look after ourselves so yes, these are the four projects. So if someone um, thinks that, hey, shit, I really want to be part of that, go to mystepstosobriety.com, um, just as it is, mystepstosobriety.com, and uh, look up uh, Become a Co-Author 
uh, just press the button and you go straight to the various books. And uh, yeah, would love to hear your story. Would love to hear your, your, would love to bring you on board. It is amazing. There's already an amazing team of some offers coming together. Um, but you don't need to be established offer. No, this is your chance to actually become one. Because whilst there are 16 co-offers, all of you will have your name on Amazon as an offer. So here you are. You've established yourself as an offer. And you never know where that leads you. You never know. You might get addicted to it. You might actually really have a nice positive addiction of actually, wow, it's cool to tell your story. And I can actually influence people. And I can make my mess a message. My baggage it leaves in the past now turn that into a message how cool is that how cool it is when you actually do more healing whilst you're actually doing all that because whatever you do you're you are healing that's the fantastic thing so again you're talking about the writing um so i've i've offered these opportunities up first to the show guests i mean we've done on my show i've done 240, 235 interviews so far, uh, which about 220 or so uh, odd are published now. And I've offered it to those people. And some of them I had interviewed a year and a half ago. But, uh, and we might have talked about something very different. And suddenly they saw me looking for co-authors and they said, well, actually, you know, this is my story. And they put their hand up. And it's beautiful. So whilst these people have maybe dealt with burnout in the past, for which I've interviewed them, suddenly it turns out that they actually had depression quite dramatically impacting them. And that was a trauma they had not yet dealt with. And now they are coming to me and, and actually saying, hey, look, I think this is a really cool thing. I want to be on board there to actually work with that. So again, it's a healing journey. It's It's uncovering more. And even if you think you've dealt with something really well, you will be surprised. That's all I say. <laughs> There's so much more always. waiting in our psyche. Always, isn't it? <laughs> there is always. Healing is never finished. We are never complete. So we say it's and a that's... journey, not destination. Oh, shit, yeah. But it's so beautiful. I, I don't call it necessarily healing. Healing is something that means that there is a trauma in the past. Yeah, I've got shitloads of traumas, but they don't define me. Um, I call it growth. I call it, I call it having a dream and then making that dream so crystal clear that it becomes a vision. You can see it, you can smell it, you can taste it. And then taking steps to turn that mission to a vision into a mission, make it a reality. And that is where taking action comes in. But if you don't know what your dream is, if you don't know your why, you can take action until the cows come home because you've got 360 degrees to walk. Um, so if you don't know which way you want to walk, well, you can walk until you're, until you're dead. You will not get to the right place. So you better think first, where do you want to go? And that growth is waiting for us, waiting for us who have gone through the darkness because we know how precious the light is. We know how precious life can be. I don't take it for granted. No, every second counts for me. And that is the most beautiful thing. This, this, this power to grow. This, I get to make decisions. Right now, I get to choose to get really excited by sharing my story with you. I enjoy every drop of adrenaline that is flashing through my veins. 
later on I'm gonna be exhausted but I gonna I will enjoy sitting with my wife I take her out for, for lunch and I will say wow shit that was a cool cool discussion there but I'm emotionally drained but I will enjoy sitting there with her and will enjoy that steak and the chips or whatever I'll order. Um, and it will be fine because I will be there. I will be there in that moment. I choose to be there in that moment. And there might be later on a moment where I just enjoy do some games on my phone or watching some mindless dribble um, on television. That's fine. But I will do that with purpose. I will give my body a rest. These are all decisions I get to make. Because I have gone through the darkness. And you guys have got the same, the same, I don't know how many seconds are in a day. I keep forgetting the figure. But all these seconds are there. Uh, take for granted you have to sleep at some stage. And But even on the toilet, you can think, what do I want to do? Uh, yeah, okay, what do I want to do? Maybe read the news headlines. Cool. You need to stay in touch with the world. Fair call. Or you might just, you know, whilst you're having a shower, Yes, you can just dream. Dream of, of your next project. Dream of, I don't know. And But be careful because that can become addictive. For a while, I, I struggled as a doctor because every time I went under the shower, I had actually a new idea for a publication and for, for work to be done. And it was just, oh, God. And they were all good ideas. So you can actually uh, get conditioned uh, to for your brain to come up with really good ideas. So I did that uh, maybe mistakenly in the wrong direction. Great. I want to publish. I want to be a, 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 you know, professor, whatever. Um, and uh, nowadays I'm different. I choose a different direction, but still the same happens. I think, Hey, I just read an article. Maybe I should get in touch with that person and get him on my show. And typically there's no holding me back, but, I've adjusted my my direction. I know where I want to go, and I allow myself to take steps every day. Sometimes tiny, 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 wincy steps, and sometimes there are no there are no jumping boards that could be stronger than the steps that I take. Every day is different, and but you guys have that that choice to live with passion, live with integrity, live with with open eyes and and you have got a right to do so. You deserve to do so. You have gone for a lot of shit, okay? That's for granted because you're on that show. You're listening to to me and, and to Krista. And that's fair call. But the drama doesn't define you. So who do you want to be when you grow up? Huh? And it doesn't matter if you're 18 or if you're 80. Okay? I make that sort of tongue-in-cheek comment to a lot of my patients who have got hip joint replacements or or something like that they might be 80 and they're really crumpy when they come to me because they have been for two years in pain and now i get a new hip and i say cool fantastic your life restarts cool what do you want to do you know where are you going and suddenly they yeah yeah i i i you get them from this to oh yeah i want to and you drop 50 years of their life you suddenly, bang, the light comes on. And they're saying, yeah, I want to walk again with my dog. I want to do, wow. And to see that change, that transformation with one question, asking them the right question. And if I can do that to my patients, maybe you can do that to yourself. What's to happen if you start asking the right questions? Not why me? 
Why did that happen to me? Guess what? Guess what? Your brain will tell you 20,000 reasons. Okay. <laughs> it will come up with an answer. You know, come on, guys, you know the story. So, okay. I want you not to think of the color blue. Under no circumstances do I want you to think about the color blue. Okay. No, don't think about don't think about blue. What does your brain do? It thinks blue. It looks around. Where's blue? Where's blue? Let's blue, blue. So, okay. These are the things that your brain does. Your brain wants to give you answers. So how about you ask the right questions? Maybe questions that are more likely to come up with a positive answer, with a positive growth, with something leading you towards a better you. How cool would that be? Um, I mean, Krista, what do you do when you do chores? No one hates to do chores. Come on, no one. No one in this world. You cannot tell me, I love ironing. Oh, I love washing up. That's so beautiful. So what are the tricks you use to change that? Do you put some music on? I often music, do. definitely. Yeah, it, yep. exactly. Do I want to do a podcast? For sometimes I do that. I do a podcast whilst I'm doing weeding or something like that. Hey, yeah, cool. That works. Um, repackage it. So this is a decision you can make. Okay, so make more decisions. How can you turn something negative into something positive? And the moment you ask yourself that, different, different. I love my life. And that's not bullshit. And by the way, I'm not on anything. I might look like someone who has a mixture of cocaine and a bit of a pee and a bit of whatever, stimulant. No, that's my life. That's my life now that, I'm, that I've gone through my shit and got most of it sorted. And that's, that's intoxicating, really. I love my life. I love it. And I, I would hate to die. One of the biggest fears now for me is to actually die because there's so much I still want to achieve, so much legacy I want to leave, so much, so much life I, I want to live. So that's cool. It's, I love it. And guys, there's absolutely no reason why you cannot have the same life as I have. End of the story. Whatever right. you say, but, but, but. No matter bullshit, the diagnosis, call... no matter the labels, no matter the, the excuses, no matter the Absolutely. reasons, whatever you're saying yeah. right now in your head as he says that. <laughs> absolute you bullshit. Absolutely can. <laughs> well, I think that's a beautiful place to go ahead and stop for the night. But what is the one thing, if you could only say one thing to someone who's struggling and suffering and wants change but is afraid of change what is the one thing you would say to that person normally my standard answer to that would be the past does not equal the future but that does not address the second part in your question that says someone who is afraid of making that choice and I think to that person, I would say that it's okay not to be okay. It's normal not to be okay. I was in your shoes and I will be in your shoes again. There will be times when I'm again in the dumps and it's okay. It's okay not to be okay. I would stop there for a moment and say that doesn't mean to say that you have to stay there in that place. There is hope out there. You just can't see it yet. But there's hope out there. 
I think that is the key message to everyone listening. There is hope. Let yourself be guided towards the light. You can't see it at the moment. There's too much crap in front of your eyes. And that's okay. It's okay not to be okay. But it's not okay to just stay there and accept it for what it is. A shit show. No. You can do better. You deserve better. You guys, I believe in you. You're There's so much strength in you. And you just haven't discovered that yet. So don't be afraid. Just make that one phone call. Just all I want you to do is do that phone call to your family physician or to someone you trust. Someone who trusts, but who also knows what to do. So it doesn't just help if you call your mum, unless she is a psychoanalyst or something like that. It's probably not the right way to go. Um, and even then, you don't want to talk to your mum, okay? Probably <laughs> That's probably the last patient you want to talk to. <laughs> so no, there is hope. There is hope. Okay, so one last time, how can people find you, find your podcast, find your book? Cool. Go to www.mystepstosobriety.com and you will find links to everything I do from my show, podcast, books I'm writing, books I have written, um, everything there from my first children's book. Uh, where is it there? That's Esme, the Mindful Mouse, the first children's book I've written, because you want to address the, the kiddos early and teach them mindfulness uh, before it gets too late. Uh, my Steps to Sobriety here, uh, available on Amazon, um, and uh, just go out there. It is, uh, what possibly can you lose? It is, uh, go out there and, and see if if some of the work that I do gels with you. Visit my YouTube show uh, because I've had fantastic guests uh, and I've got different sub-channels there. Some of them are about uh, PTSD, depression, anxiety, addiction, of course, um, sexual abuse. We are talking about any, any traumatic event that there is. I had two concentration camp survivors on my show. Um, things like that so we are talking about a lot of uh, a lot of really hardcore kind of things and i'm trying to learn from my guests and in turn you get to learn from our experiences there so come along and and come along for the ride and see if you like it and yeah that's cool and if not uh, that's absolutely fine you try something new and either it works or it doesn't work so Take action, assess what happens, take more action, assess what happens. That's how you heal, that's how you how you learn everything. So www.mystepstosobriety.com. Hope for thank I'm looking so forward to seeing for you there. Krista, thank you so much for having me. You're an amazing woman. Uh, you're giving all that hope. You're out there and putting yourself out there. And it's beautiful to see. We need more people like you, and I'm, I'm, my, my heartfelt uh, gratitude to you, my thank you to you for the work you're doing. You're an amazing woman. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for being with us today. I know our show was a little longer than usual, but obviously we've had an amazing conversation full of actual applicable tools that you guys can take and put into action immediately. Please feel free if Stefan's message resonated with you. Go check out his site. Go check out his podcast. Get those books on your shelf. 
I know he's the books are full of actionable steps and we all need more easy to apply real world actionable steps that make sense in our lives. So thank you so much for being here with us this afternoon. And I want to, to remind you that today's episode was sponsored by uh, now that my brain can't think about it, today's episode was sponsored by Right Next Door Designs, and they can handle all of your home decorating and interior design needs. So be sure to check out rightnextdoordesigns.com if you have some of those needs coming up. And I will talk to you guys all within the next few days.